welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dan L. Burke, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the AI Global Public Policy Institute at University of California, Irvine School of Law. We will discuss his article, 36 Views of Copyright Authorship by Jackson Pollock, which will be published in the Houston Law Review. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. I'm really glad to uh, be part of the podcast. Oh, I'm really glad to have you on. I can't believe it's taken this long. I really should have invited you a long time ago, but I'm super psyched that your first uh, Ipsodixit appearance is going to be this paper because I love it. I loved reading it and I loved the concept of it. The first time I saw the title, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to read that article, um, which is a reference to a really famous series of Japanese paintings. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of aesthetic conceit behind the article, because I think it's absolutely wonderful and and a really makes it a really fun read. Yeah, yeah. So so the article uh, is um, uh, it's set up as a series of views or, or vignettes. Um, that give a uh, hypothetical activity by an artist. Uh, and, and for reasons that I think will become clear in our conversation, I, I ended up using Jackson Pollock. Um, uh, and and it, it's really kind of a Socratic walk through um, copyright authorship, uh, some, some dimensions of copyright authorship. Um, and so there are, uh, there are these 36 vignettes or 36 um, uh, little scenarios uh, each one trying to illustrate something about uh, copyright authorship, and um, the the kind of the influence or or motivating um, uh, factor in in structuring things that way uh, was actually a, a short story by the science fiction writer Roger Zelazny, uh, who wrote a, a Hugo Award winning story uh, called uh, Twenty Four Views of Mount Fuji uh, by Hokusai, and of course Hokusai was the a uh, very famous Japanese uh, printmaker uh, who did uh, originally 20, uh, 36 views of, of Mount Fuji. And it was so popular uh, at the time that he actually did another 10. So it ended up being 46 uh, scenarios or, or uh, uh, kind of views of everyday life in, in Edo, Japan uh, around Mount Fuji. Uh, and and Zelazny apparently had uh, received as a gift uh, a an abbreviated version of the Hokusai Fuji series. It only had, had 24 views. Um, but that inspired him to write this story. And, and the story, um, uh, Zelazny was a great writer, and the story was an influence on me in a lot of ways. But, but the story has all these elements in it about uh, the meaning of art and art connecting to life and uh, artificial intelligence uh, and, and what is consciousness and uh, uh, what does it mean to be human. Um, and those are all kind of buried in the uh, in the article in in various ways. Uh, and and the, the story also has a, uh, as I say, Zelazny was was a great writer. Has lots of uh, kind of literary Easter eggs. You know, it's got references to Chaucer and uh, Rilke and and H. P. Lovecraft. Um, so there's there's some there's some some dimensions of that in the uh, in the the paper in the article as well, which is. May, it may not be normal for uh, for legal scholarship, uh, but I thought it worked really well to try and get some points across that I wanted to, to talk about. Well, so the 
the kind of ostensible project of the article anyway, is to investigate how we think about artificial intelligence and kind of human machine interaction in relation to the production of works of authorship. And my impression is that a lot of work on that front has come at it from a kind of very abstracted theoretical kind of perspective. By contrast, your article kind of comes almost obliquely at that question through particular scenarios. And I I wonder why you took that approach and why you think that's a helpful intervention or way of thinking about the set of questions or questions posed in this context. Yeah, you're you're right. That's a that's a good way to think about it. And um and, and the reason I took the the approach that I took um is that this is in some sense uh what I call a, a brush clearing article. In other words, there's some issues that I want to get at. Um uh, but there are a whole bunch of preliminary issues that have to be dealt with and sort of sort of clear the brush, the underbrush before you can get uh where you want to be. So as you said, you know, there's there's a lot of attention right now uh in uh, not just legal scholarship, but in policy making, and uh, you know, lots of governments, lots of think tanks are trying to figure out this question as to how artificial intelligence uh, fits into uh, the creative industries, uh, because of course we have uh, machine learning systems now that uh, are generating paintings, they're generating texts, uh, they're generating uh, new music. Um, uh, there's an entire uh, film uh, uh, photo play, you know, script that's been generated by uh, by an AI system. Um, and so a lot of people are thinking about this and, and the big question in everybody's mind is, you know, can an AI, can a machine uh, be an author? And I think that's completely the wrong question. Uh, you know, that's, that's uh, we're wasting a bunch of time on that when there are much more serious things to be thought about. So, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to, if I could just say, look, uh, this question of whether an AI can be an author is not a relevant question. And I wanted to just cite to some existing work and then move on uh, to talk about the issues that are that are out there. Um, and I found out that I couldn't because nobody had laid the groundwork of a, the uh, you know the, the brush hadn't been cleared. So um, so so I I set this up again as kind of a, a Socratic walk. You know, it's almost like a, almost the stations stations of copyright authorship uh, 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 to to try and, and clear up some of that. Um, because uh, you know, I, I start with a very simple scenario um, that would be familiar to everybody, which is the artist, and I call him Jackson Pollock. Uh, the artist paints a picture with a paintbrush. Right? Um, well, that's obviously a, a work of, of authorship, an expressive work that would be subject to copyright. Um, and nobody thinks that the paintbrush is the author or that the paintbrush should be considered a co-author, right? And then you walk through increasingly more uh, more complicated or complex scenarios until you get to the AI version, right? Where uh, the artist uh, or even somebody uh, after the artist is dead uh, uses an AI to generate work uh, based on the artist's input. Um, and again, uh, that's a very sophisticated tool, uh, and, but nobody, uh, I think, should be claiming that that AI is an author or that it's a co-author. Um, there's a there's a wonderful uh, new book out that I cite in the in the paper, uh, you know, by a by a media studies uh, expert uh, who says, you know, the question in the world now is not whether a machine can be creative, 
That's the wrong question. But the question is, what does it mean for a human to be creative mm. in AI environment, right? And that's really the question that I wanted to get at. And that's why I chose this, uh, you know, 36 views of different aspects of authorship to try and try and sort of move the reader along to get to that to, to that question. Well, so the paper is he kind of uses Jackson Pollock or sort of like a, an imaginary Jackson Pollock almost as the kind of key framing device. Why why Jackson Pollock? Yeah, I, I wish I could have used Hokusai because, as I said, in some senses, he you know he was kind of the uh, original. Um, uh, inspiration for this, and and uh, and in some ways, uh, his art is a foil for Jackson Pollock. I really needed to use Jackson Pollock um, because of the element of randomness or serendipity or or discovery that people perceive in Jackson Pollock's work. Um, it also is not coincidental that if you look at Supreme Court cases, if you look at copyright scholarship uh, treatises. You know, everybody uses Jackson Pollock as the as the example, right? Um, so this is kind of the the paradigm example uh, that people uh, use in copyright. So so I used it here as well because, uh, you know, as I say, we want to ultimately get at this question about you know what does it mean to be a creative human uh, in an environment that is uh, suffused with artificial intelligence and machine learning types of tools. Uh, and and the arguments that people have been raising about you know authorship or co-authorship by the machine um, have hinged on the idea of um, uh, you could call it randomness. Uh, many people call it emergent properties. And it's that you don't know what's going to come out of the machine. Um, and and so if you said, well, look, uh, if the artist paints a painting uh, with a paintbrush, nobody thinks the paintbrush is an author or a co-author. And the answer is, well, that's because that's pretty predictable, right? You know, it's like we sort of know uh, how a paintbrush behaves and, and what's going to come from the bristles and, you know, what kinds of textures and, and techniques you're going to get from that paintbrush. Um, but if I put a bunch of data into a machine learning system, into a neural network, uh, you know, you could get all kinds of emergent or unexpected things out of it. Right? And we say, well, you know, Jackson Pollock got some pretty unexpected things out of his painting technique. Um, and, uh, and we still are pretty sure that he was a, an author for copyright purposes, and we still don't think that his paintbrushes or his tools were, were co-authors. So the, the question of emergent properties or unexpected outputs, uh, I think, is, is a red herring. It's really irrelevant. And that's part of the, the sequence of scenarios or vignettes in this, uh, in this paper is to sort of walk uh, the reader through different situations uh, where you have randomness or you have unexpected effects um, and uh, help the reader understand that that's not an impediment to being an author in copyright. You know, that's actually something that we kind of expect, you know, that the the artist may have a general idea of what she wants to do, right? May, may have some general intent uh, to produce a painting or to produce a sculpture or whatever the, whatever the artifact is going to be. Um, and she doesn't always know in advance how that's going to turn out. Um, uh, sometimes it comes out exactly as originally envisioned. Sometimes there are happy accidents that you didn't expect and you accept those as part of the, part of the work. 
Um, sometimes it, uh, you know, you can never get it right. You know, I mean, some artists try their whole lives to capture the vision that they have and it never quite works. But nonetheless, those are all expressive works that are subject to copyright. And, and the problem that it's unexpected or random or, uh, or emergent uh, is really not a relevant question in thinking about copyright authorship. So one of the things I really liked about the framing device is the way it's so kind of beautifully echoed the Hokusai framing for me, because in a sense, I always took those paintings to sort of be about life in the shadow of Mount Fuji. It's like Mount Fuji is the omnipresent sort of looming edifice, but the work is really about the things that happen around it. And it seems to me that in a lot of ways, kind of Jackson Pollock is kind of culturally important in part because of what he stands for in relation to the creative process as much as for the actual artwork itself. And it seemed like that sort of, that sort of like echo between the role of Mount Fuji and the role of Jackson Pollock really informed for me the way that the vignettes kind of illustrated the different ways we think about the people, the ways that people engage in the creative act. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's, uh, I think that's exactly what I was striving for. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I presented uh, a version of this paper, the most, most recent edit of this paper at a, at a workshop uh, a couple of weeks ago with some of our intellectual property colleagues uh, and a, a, a very, very prominent, very famous uh, uh, scholar, copyright scholar um, uh, said to me that this seems to me more like a, a work of performance art than, than, you know, than legal scholarship. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I have succeeded uh, in, in what I was attempting to do. I'm, I'm not sure he meant it as a compliment, but, but I took it, took it that way. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, when you think about, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in sort of the social construction of uh, legal concepts and, and in particular of intellectual property. Uh, you know, so if you think about the, the sociologists like, you know, Latour and uh, people in that, in that school of uh, science and technology studies, um, you say, well, so what's going on when, when an artist paints a, paints a painting? Uh, you know, let's start with the simple version at the beginning of my paper, uh, you know, that you have an artist and you have a paintbrush and you have some, some pigments and you have a canvas. Um, and I say, well, that's a socio-technical network, right? It has some, some human actors and some non-human actors, uh, each of which have characteristics, right? Jackson Pollock, uh, you know, picks up the paintbrush. The paintbrush has certain kinds of bristles. It has certain uh, kinds of affordances or characteristics that will uh, lend itself when it contacts the canvas to textures and, um, and other kinds of uh, kinds of uh, impact or or changes on the on the canvas. Um, uh, Pollock uh, is an individual who has certain characteristics. He's going to use that in a certain way, and so you have this uh, collaboration between human and non-human uh, elements uh, that ultimately results in this in this painting. Um, and the, the place I want the reader to get to in the paper is, is the same understanding of what's going on with uh, AI painting, you know, machine learning uh, types of systems. That, again, is a socio-technical network uh, with human and non-human elements, right? Um, and and uh, it looks kind of like magic, right? Like a painting comes out of uh, the neural network. Uh, you know, you may have seen, for example, 
the, the next Rembrandt, right? That was a kind of a, a lot of press, you know, that they fed all of the digitized uh, work of, uh, of Rembrandt into the neural network and sort of trained it as to what Rembrandt's style was. And then the AI produced a new painting in the style of Rembrandt. Uh, and you go, and, and, and so the, the instinct is to say, uh, wow, you know, that's, uh, must be an author. The AI must be an author uh, in the style of Rembrandt. But again, you know, if you're talking about science fiction authors, go back to Arthur C. Clarke, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic, right? Um, this is really a complex network of uh, human intervention, right? People who chose the data that was used to train the AI, people who designed the, the AI system, which is really a, a statistical optimization software, right? So you have to choose the parameters of the software and the statistical um, uh, parameters that, you know, that, the, that it detects in the data. Um, uh, you have to make some sort of choices about, uh, you know, what kinds of outputs are acceptable and unacceptable. Um, so you have all this hardware, all this software, all of these humans, you know, programmers, users uh, who are all involved. And yes, you get a painting out the other end, um, but it's a result of this uh, interconnection of human and non-human actors. And in copyright law, our job is to figure out, okay, as among the human actors, which one do we want to assign authorship to? Who's going to get copyright? Um, uh, it's not to uh, sort of go off on uh, kind of a wild uh, goose chase uh, saying, you know, okay, well, so now is the machine an author? Is the paintbrush an author? Is my printing press an author? No, it's part of the network. Mm. So one thing I really liked about the paper was the way in which you used art as the foil for asking these questions, because I found it kind of ironic that in so many ways, the art world kind of doesn't care that much about what copyright law has to say about what contemporary artists do. And in many respects, copyright doesn't seem to have the right tools to speak to how contemporary artists conceptualize what it is that they're doing. And I couldn't help but wonder whether the same thing isn't also true in relation to artificial intelligence and machine learning. In other words, does copyright really provide helpful tools for us to ask the relevant questions or is it for something else? Yeah, well, so, so I, think you're, I think you're exactly on the right track. Uh, the, the, I had a very interesting conversation with, uh, with one of our colleagues uh, who specializes in art law, uh, Amy Adler, who said, you know, I, the paper goes through these 36 scenarios of different ways of creating art. Uh, it could be with a paintbrush, it could be with a, uh, uh, you know, lithography, it could be with artificial intelligence. Um, she said, and, and uh, she said she could think of examples of artists who have done every one of these things. Uh, and I was actually tempted to maybe try and tuck some of those references into the, the footnotes. Um, I don't know how well that would have worked, uh, you know, in the whole uh, law journal publication process. So ultimately, I didn't do that. But, but yes, I mean, there, there are artists who have done all of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, copyright is uh, supposed to be a system of rewarding creativity, of recognizing creativity. Um, which is one of the reasons that I contend that uh, trying to assign copyright to the machine makes no sense whatsoever, right? 
and and as I say that the I think the question here is what does it mean for a human to be creative in an AI environment? Um, and so uh, I, your sense is correct. Uh, we're looking at the wrong question in some sense, and, and I'm trying to clear uh, you know clear the brush or sort of move that question out of the way um, to get at the real question, which I think ultimately is going to be you know what is the role of the human? You know, what kind of incentives do you need for, for human creativity um, when AI becomes the tool, right? Instead of the paintbrush, instead of the printing press, uh, instead of some other type of tool that we're more familiar with. And intellectual property, uh, you know, traditionally or historically has been a tool to try and deal with uh, dramatic uh, falling or dramatic reduction in the cost of distributing creative works, right? You know, so Gutenberg develops the printing press. All of a sudden, you don't have to uh, write books, you know, copy them by hand in the scriptorium. Uh, it becomes much cheaper to distribute books. Um, and you have to have something to deal with the fact that there's no longer a natural impediment uh, to making copies and making unauthorized copies of the work. Um, so copyright law starts to, to develop shortly after after Gutenberg. And you can uh, sort of go forward in time, and the history of copyright is really the history of uh, the developments in copying and distribution technologies, whether that's the photocopy machine, whether that's uh, you know the, the sound recordings, uh, whether it's the internet or Napster or, or uh, you know other technological advances, copyright's always struggling uh, to keep up and deal with the fact that the the cost of uh, the marginal cost of distributing copies is getting lower and lower. AI does change that, right? Because uh, AI isn't about uh, making cheap copies. Uh, it's not about distributing copies more cheaply. Um, AI actually uh, makes creativity cheap, right? Um, so so we're, we're familiar with other industries where the machine, you know, where the automation displaces the worker. Um, and uh, this is happening now in the creative industries, right? Where you say, well, okay, I could hire an artist uh, to paint some paintings or hire an artist to compose some music, or I can just use this, uh, this uh, machine learning system uh, to generate thousands and thousands of songs on the patterns that have been popular, uh, you know, in the top 40 uh, hits, you know, over the past 50 years. Um, or to generate uh, uh, graphics, paintings of a particular style. It could be Rembrandt, it could be Jackson Pollock, it could be whatever, right? Um, and so I don't need the human there anymore, right? I can, I can generate lots and lots of cheap works. Um, so, so it's really not a question of cheap copying or cheap distribution. It's a question of cheap creativity uh, that, the, that the creative human input uh, is being augmented or changed or displaced by the AI. Um, and it may be that copyright doesn't address that very well. You know, uh, as you say, copyright was about dealing with distribution and copying, not about initial creation. Um, so uh, that's really the next paper, but the, but the next paper I argue, uh, or I'm going to argue, um, that copyright is probably gonna be displaced by other uh, types of intellectual property, like rights of publicity, like trademark law, um, things that deal with authenticity, um, right? Things that deal with, uh, you know, sort of the, the moral right or the reputation of the artist. Um, those are going to become important because the one thing we know about uh, automation and about AI uh, is that uh, human contact 
uh, is always valued and, and in fact becomes a luxury good, right? And if I can go to, you know, it's not in the not too distant future, I can go, I can go for, for a medical checkup uh, and an expert system AI can give me a medical checkup uh, and maybe it'll do a pretty good job. But, you know, if I've got the money, I'm going to be willing to pay more to have a human look at me. Uh, maybe I want both, right? And so, so uh, my sense is that we need to move aside the question of AI authorship um, and focus on human authorship and what it is that will uh, give incentives to humans in the AI environment. And, I, and it may not be copyright law, right? It may be uh, some other type of intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, I really felt that conceptual shift in what you have previously described as like the Socratic stroll through these different questions. And like from a legal scholarship artist perspective, one thing I really liked kind of technically that you did was illustrate the tension kind of inherent in trying to answer the questions you're posing through the lens of our kind of received analogies from copyright doctrine and how sometimes the answers they seem to spit out aren't very satisfying. Was that something you felt while you were writing the paper? It was. And, and, uh, you know, as I say, in some sense, this is a brush clearing paper. I'm t trying to clear a path to uh, this question about what it means for uh, a human, for, for an artist uh, to be creative in an AI environment. Um, and as, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, I would have liked to have just skipped past that. I would like to have just said, you know, oh, okay, this has already, you know, been, been settled and I can just refer to this other work. The other work wasn't there, uh, because we have a very poor, uh, doctrinal conception of authorship and copyright. And so, uh, part of what I argue in the paper, uh, you know, sort of moving people from scenario to scenario between these 36 views, um, is that we have the tools to figure that out, uh, right? Uh, but they aren't in copyright law. Copyright law is is really uh, under theorized and and very uh, sparse. Um, but if you look at other areas of law where we deal with the same questions, you know, uh, for example, causation is an important theme in this paper. Um, we say in copyright that to be an author, you have to express, you, know, you have to fix original expression. Well, that means it has to originate with that person, with that author. Um, that implies causation, that we can trace, you know, what ends up fixed on the page or uh, photographic print or, or canvas. Uh, we can trace that back to its origin, right, to the, the person who expressed that, where it originated. Um, we have very little sense of causation and copyright, but it's very rich in other areas of law, like torts and, and criminal law. And, and so we can look there um, uh, to help us do this, right? Um, uh, in torts and in criminal law, uh, you know, it's very common to talk about the requirement of a mental state and a physical act, right? You have to have a mens rea and an actus reus, you know, in order to uh, satisfy the statutory definition of some crime, for example. Uh, you have to have a certain intent and then you have to engage in a particular act. Um, the same is actually true in copyright, right? You know, there has to be an act, an act of expressive fixation, um, and there has to be a mental state, which is some type of creative intent or understanding uh, on the part of the artist to express uh, whatever it ends up being fixed in a tangible medium. Um, 
But again, you know, we have never developed or explored, you know, what exactly is that mental state? In criminal law, they talk about desire states, you know, that you have to intend something uh, or, or have a motivation. Um, uh, in, uh, in copyright, it seems to be some sort of creation state, right? You know, you have some idea or intent that you want to paint a painting or, or, or sculpt a sculpture or uh, write, a, write a poem. Um, uh, but we just have never explored that. Patent law has explored it. You know, what does it mean to conceive of an invention? Uh, but in copyright, we're very, very sparse. So there's lots of work to be done there. And what I found as I was writing the paper is, you know, the interesting question uh, is not really whether AIs can be authors. The interesting question may be that, that solving that problem or dealing with that problem prompts us to uh, really enrich our copyright jurisprudence, right? It's, you know, it, it's the... It's the jurisprudence uh, or the doctrines that we created along the way, right? That was was the real uh, the real adventure. Mm. Well, so Dan, in closing, the kind of looming question for me, reading your paper and now talking to you about it, is whether, in some sense, kind of human artistic culture itself isn't kind of a form of artificial intelligence already, and whether we haven't been really ignoring this very question for a really long time, and now we're just starting to see it because it's being posed in a new way. So I, I think, I, I, think I, I agree with that, or at least with a version of, of that, uh, of that uh, formulation, right? As I said before, any type of human activity, including creative human activities, uh, authorship, you know, whether you're writing a poem, whether you're painting a painting, uh, whatever you're doing, um, is this uh, socio-technical network of human and non-human influences. And we've started to explore that in copyright a little bit with regard to human influences, right? Uh, we realized, uh, you know, some, some work by some of our colleagues, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, like, hey, um, Creative works don't just spring from the mind of the genius, right? There's always lots of influences, and we've assumed that in copyright, the so-called romantic author, right? Um, but there's all kinds of uh, networks of influences that ought to be recognized and ought to be understood in copyright. Um, so really what I'm doing here is, is going the next step, right? Saying, okay, that, that's right. Uh, whether you're talking about Jackson Pollock or Hokusai or whoever, uh, whoever the artist is, um, he has been influenced by lots of other people, and he in turn influences other people. Um, but there are also physical or material influences that we need to take into account, and uh, and we have tended not to do that in copyright law. Um, so so in addition to recognizing, you know, the we don't have a romantic genius uh, that uh, produces works full blown from their mind um, and has uh, connections to other humans. Um, now it's time to re recognize the connections to uh, material objects and, and technologies that surround us. Um, and in that sense, yes, you do have a, a kind of a, uh, a network, almost an artificial intelligence, anytime that something creative is generated. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent paper. I really enjoyed talking to you about it, and I hope listeners will check it out because the paper is really a lot of fun. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Her daddy was strong and the stars of heaven in the room.
Road was a gambler for a great big bet. He was money, the devil, the crazy strings, and the shot of her lady. And she said, No, you can't take my door. I don't want to love you anymore. Let my heart be my face. Sparked whiskey good in a whiskey straight. No, you can't take my door. I want to be the one to make a living through the jukebox. You say you want me to try to have you close, so I'll be happy. Honky tonkin' at the bus. The same old crowd is the one who knows. Look at yourself and a hand and a shelf in the wind. Oh, look at yourself and a hand and a shelf in the wind. Oh, you can't take my door. I don't wanna love you anymore. Let my heart be my face. Sparked whiskey good in a whiskey straight. No, you can't take my door. Let my heart 